And we're live. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special edition of Fans of Power. Um, Very special since we're talking about a specific kind of power this week. We're talking about fans of mutant power, and uh, uh, we've tried this once before, but I think it just builds up the anticipation that Larry Houston, director of the uh, 1990s X-Men animated series and various other works with Marvel Animation, has... uh, Grace us again with his presence to talk about his time on X-Men and other uh, properties of uh, superhero sorts. So, Larry, thank you again for taking time out of your schedule to, to join us to talk about this uh, very beloved property. I'm glad you guys invited me along to be a part of your show and uh, talk to fans who actually appreciated the, the show that almost never got. Let's see. Well, I guess... Um, I guess we could start out with by by kind of um, addressing how you got introduced to the X Men before we dig into your your journey to the X Men series. Like, what what started you on this path of of this passion for the X Men? Well, for me, I up and kid back in the '60s, and I've always liked that concept. When I, I got a job. That Stan and a lot of us wanted to do was to was not only get Spider-Man and Hulk, but we wanted to get the X-Men. The only way we could do that because it wasn't any the network wasn't interested in buying the show at the time. Called the Pride of the X-Men, where we got the financing financing together, and we got also the. a major company overseas uh, called Toy Animation, the pilot. And so, uh, Larry, Larry, we're the, having audio issues. Are you using your laptop or your phone? Uh, the laptop. You want to use the phone? It might be better if you use the phone because we're we're getting some audio uh, glitches on your end. Oh, okay. Let me. Um, how do what do I just? Log off of here. It just yeah, just close off of that, and then just uh, you know, like like uh, like we did before the other day with your phone. Okay, let me do that right now. Okay. All right, we'll kill a little time while you're doing that uh, with just a brief discussion. Um, Tyler, you've had Larry on Fans of Power before, and we've talked about some of the stuff early on in his uh, career about Master of the Universe, and we'll we'll retread some of that stuff for people who haven't seen that episode. Um, but I don't think we'll, we'll cover everything that's in there. So there's still a reason for people to go back and, um, you know, check out that episode because that's going to be master specific. Yes. And we'll touch on a few of those things here. Um, but not, not quite as much as, as back then. But, um, so, I mean, he's, this is a guy with, with a lot of stuff, a lot of creative stuff, uh, you know, under his belt. Um, just off the top of your head, some of the different things like he he worked on G.I. Joe, Spider-Man, Thunder of the Barbarian, Mr. T. Is Was there anything specific besides Masters of the Universe um, and the X-Men that you really liked and wanted to wanted to kind of focus on today when we have a chance to talk to him? Uh, you know, the, the G.I. Joe intro for the, the 87 movie, because <clears throat> I've been a big fan of G.I. Joe and I always loved the movie regardless of its uh, taking liberties with the backgrounds of Cobra and that to a much more science fiction type, but it, I still love the movie and that intro 
whether you like the movie or not, is beloved by all G.I. Joe fans, and Larry is responsible for that, and I believe the first 10 minutes of the film as well, at least um, uh, animation-wise. Uh, whether he storyboarded it or, or not, I'm, I'm not sure. If that's He's responsible for the first 10 minutes, I do know that. So the sequences yeah, with yeah, I was going to say an interesting thing to talk about would be the way that they break up the duties when they, you know, do some of that stuff. Because normally in your mind, you think a movie, a director, you know, one guy, one vision all the way through, you know, working with special effects, working with the sound guy, working with whatever. But with animated movies, they always have these different crews in different places. And so that might be an interesting thing to talk about, the way they work together with the different, uh, you know, units and whatever. Um, I'm going to send another invitation real quick okay. to him just in case. Uh, and then he'll be able to hopefully to find that and get back through. Um, so off the top of your head, uh, thinking back to Masters of the Universe, what was his connection to Masters of the Universe? He worked up... Well, there's Larry. There. Uh, All right, you're right there, Larry. Now? Yes. Yeah, it's like I said, it's hot here. <laughs> it's got a lot of uh, <laughs> got the air conditioning running in the background. We're all, we're in the mid eighties out here. Oh, I love. I don't know how hot that is to you, but it's hot to me. Hey man, when it hits seventy two degrees, I have to have the air on. I don't like it any hotter than that. <laughs> I keep it cranked okay. about sixty degrees in my place. Yeah. Okay. All right. Is this any better? Um, yeah. Yeah. Actually, you're coming through a lot clearer. Actually. Yes. Oh. Okay. Just got to get used to holding this phone. <laughs> okay. You got something you can pop it on that way you can keep your hands free? Um, let me find it. Let me see if I can make this thing stand up by itself. <laughs> this is always the fun stuff when you bring somebody on. <laughs> uh, oops. Stay still. Got a little bit of wildlife there. You got some plants? Uh, that'll, yeah. That'll work. That'll work. That'll work. That'll work. That's Perfect. It. There's there we go. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Loud and clear. Perfectly clear. Okay. Let me wipe this off again. Anyway, drink plenty of water while we're talking to you. I don't want you to dehydrate with all the sweat you're going through. So, here. so briefly then, X-Men was a series that you thought would never be made. That's correct. We we tried to get the series off the ground uh, way back in Spider-Man and Amazing Friends when we did we we tried to include it in, in a couple of episodes to try and get the networks to get, give them a sample of what was going on. And then we, uh, at some point, we, the financing came through for, for, to put the show together, um, but for a pilot. And so what happened was uh, we got, it was myself, Will Minio, and Rick Holberg, along with Margaret Lesh, who was the head of the studio at the time. We got the financing and we got Toy Animation on board to do the show, and so we we got a chance to do the pilot. Now, the thing you should you should realize that is that what we wanted to do in the pilot was uh, the Sentinels, but the people who were financing financing the show said, "No, we need to sell toys." So they that's how come we had Magneto, we had the White Queen, we had the Block, we had all these action figures in the show. And but okay, we said fine. This is still part of the X Men lore. We put it together, and we put it out there for for the pilot. And um, so we did that, and it still didn't sell. <laughs> so it was kind of like we put our best foot forward, but it didn't work at the time. 
And so that's that kind of languished for about, I don't know, I'm not sure of the time period, maybe about six years. You know, you fast forward and Margaret Lesh, who was before in charge of Marvel Productions, became the head of Fox Kids. Uh, and she was in charge of all the shows. And so at that point, she was able to greenlight the X-Men series. And that's how we got it, got that first season off the ground. Now, yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I was well. I was looking through the um, the IMDb real quick here, and Spider Man and the Amazing Friends was uh, eighty one to eighty three. Prior to the X Men, didn't actually uh, looks looks here like it didn't actually reach uh, production until eighty nine. Um, so you had you know at least six years there, and then the X Men cartoon itself didn't come out until ninety two. So you had another you know, three years there. So it did take quite a long time to go through the process until you actually got, you know, a show on the air, which, you know, it's weird because you always think about, uh, you know, pilot season at networks and there's always like, you know, 40 shows at this network, 30 shows at that network. And somebody was on a show, it got canceled. And six months later, they're on another show, a new show and something. And you just think about how quickly TV shows get turned around. But I guess animation, requires a lot more work and takes a lot more time uh, than yeah. throwing a bunch of people on a set for a sitcom. Yeah, it's a, it's, we had a lot of perseverance because we really believed in the show, and so did Margaret, which is like, that was key to have that executive in charge who believed in the show. And yeah, during, after Spider-Man and Amazing Friends, what kept the studio going, because I was there for like nine years, is that we started doing every Hasbro toy in, in the world as a TV show, we did the Transformers, we did GI Joe, we did Bigfoot, we did Inhumanoids, we did so many action adventure shows after Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends. They kept the studio going for on for up until '89, '88, '89, and that's when everything went uh, south. <laughs> and Hasbro decided, well, we're not going to do this cartoon stuff anymore, and so they stopped. And then the studio basically collapsed after that and uh, went away. Now, with the, the two appearances in the X-Men, I believe it appeared one time in a Submariner cartoon, I think probably back in the 60s, I think. Oh, like yeah, yeah. One appearance, which I, I had that VHS as a child, and I thought that was really, really cool. But the the two appearances in the Amazing Friends show, looking back, and of course at the time, you know, what is your you know viewpoint when those are going into production, the Firestar was born and the X-Men adventure, as of like these are two opportunities to get the X-Men in, into you know the the eyes of children and the network executives, what what is going on in to make sure that these opportunities are like the best that can be put forward to help get them noticed? Well, at the time when those shows were coming out, we, myself and uh, Rick Kohlberg and, and Will, we would talk to the writers about that, and 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 try and st- we tried to steer them in the direction toward. Um, you know, include the X-Men in this little adventure so, just so we can try and keep showcasing the uh, the show. And um, so it was kind of a coordinated, you know, Machiavellian effort on our part to try and keep it in the uh, in the public eye and keep it in the network's purviews just, just so they can see, you know, the value of the storytelling of these characters. And so, yeah, we kind of did that on purpose. And... Um, Whenever the shows came, whenever we, like the show with, uh, I think it's Firestar, when we did It's Born, I think it's the origin, and I made sure that I got 
uh, Act Three. I wanted to do to do the action part of the show. I think Will did the beginning. No, I'm sorry, uh, Rick Holberg did the beginning, and then um, I think it was Will Minio and then myself. We were really the trio that tried to get the show on the air all the time, and uh, we were all fans of of the X Men and big fans of Captain America, both of those two characters. And that's a memorable episode, the Firestar episode, too, because of the juggernaut sequences, you know, throughout the episode. And, and Wolverine's, I think, his first appearance in animation form, I believe, uh, was in the Firestar is Born. And it, obviously the link from that one to Pride is the the choice to make Wolverine uh, Australian. Oh, God, that's and, our... As you will child, never get over that. <laughs> I had a, my buddy Matt Hilton as, as a child told me, no, 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 he's Canadian. He doesn't talk like that in the, in the, in the cartoons. Like, oh, okay. Which at the time I, I thought was perfectly fine. I, I didn't question even when I found out. But um, that was uh, something that I, I, you know, there's been rumors about the, the reasons why. Can you uh, shed a little light on, on why Wolverine's first few appearances were he was uh, an Aussie? Um, back then, there, there's a whole series of events that happened back then but the main thing was um crocodile dundee was a big movie back then and they felt the network felt that you know having an aussie would be good for him to have that accent and we were like we just want to we kind of gave in because we didn't want to fight the networks because we just wanted to get this thing on the air just so people can see it and we figured okay we'll bite the bullet just we'll make an Aussie just for this episode, but if we can get a series going, we'll change the voice back to what it should be. So it was a it was a unfortunate compromise. And at the time, um, on those shows, the three of us were not the directors. We were all the storyboard artists, but we still had the ear of um, Margaret, the, the 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 owner of the the sorry the uh, president of the studio, and so. Um, we really didn't have the gravitas to really shake the tree, so to speak. So we just kind of went along with it, grit our teeth, and going, okay, get a good X-Men uh, show out of this as much as we could. One of the things that really has been an issue for Marvel for the last 15, 20 years, however long it's been, has been the rights being mixed up all over the place. And so you've got a whole Marvel universe of movies with no X-Men in it. You've got an X-Men universe with no Captain America or Iron Man or anybody else. But it sounds like back in those days, because you were doing Spider-Man and you wanted to do the X-Men, you could just throw them in there. Were there any restrictions on characters you could use, or was it just pretty much, as long as it's in a Marvel comic, you can put it in a Marvel show? Kind of yes and no. Back then, the X-Men wasn't a big deal, so nobody thought much about it. Um, And so that's how come we could include it into the uh, Spider-Man show. Because back then, Marvel's, uh, the way they, they conducted business, they really didn't have a lot of faith in, in the animated shows. They made their money off of licensing fees. And so they really weren't concerned about the content. They just wanted to make the money for licensing the shows. And I guess they had a contract so that, you know, we could, they could have uh, Marvel characters, but they didn't have any inherent ownership if it appeared in the show back then um i think that answers the question (laughs) (laughs) well then were there any storylines or characters that you tried to use that they 
Well, like, obviously you said uh, before you wanted to focus more on Sentinels and that, and they made you do Brotherhood of Mutants and Magneto, but were, was there anything that they, you know, they said, hey, don't do anything that's like the Frank Miller stuff, uh, try to keep it, you know, family-friendly, um, you know, drop a lot of uh, stuff with the Hellfire Club, don't use the name Hellfire Club, you know, did they give you a lot of restrictions like that, or did you pretty much just know it's got to be a family-friendly thing, so we're just going to, you know, keep it a certain way? We're, we're, we're pretty much, I don't know if it's going to surprise you, but actually the people, when we did the first X-Men series, had no damn idea what the hell they were. They had no idea what a mutant was. They had no idea of anything you just said would be like talking Japanese to them. They had no idea what you just said. So they, they actually had, you know, Margaret, I found out later after the fact that Margaret actually, her job was on the line for, for greenlighting the X-Men because... Nobody believed in the project, but she believed in it. And so pretty much when the show got on the air, I'm not sorry, pretty much when production started on the show, there was no micromanagement of the show because they didn't understand. They had no idea of the mythology of who were slated to who, who's the brother, who's the sister. They had, they, they were, you know, had no interest in it also. But the people like myself, Will Menil and Rick, and some of the uh, writers, let's see the story, I'm trying to the story editors were Eric and Julia Lewall and Bob Skier, and we had knowledge of the X-Men mythology, the X, you know, who's really, you know, the good guys, bad guys, and relationships. We brought that to the table. We would talk about that amongst ourselves, and we put together the stories for the first season, the way we, you know, w- the way we wanted to do it, um, Will Minio and Eric Leroy ran a lot of uh, football. I, I can't the football analogies. They they ran a lot of uh, plays to try and minimize New York's uh, involvement in terms of um, creative, uh, getting involved with creative, and just let us do what we had to do. And um, we pretty much. Most of the time, see, back then, you got to also remember that in the 90s, a lot of shows only lasted 13 episodes, and they were gone. And so we kind of plotted out where we wanted to go for 13 episodes, and we were going we were gonna to go out in a blaze of glory saying, like, if we can only do one season, we're going to make it the best we can, and we just put it out there. And um, that there's more, there's more details that Will knows that I, I don't remember right now, but... Um, that's how come in the first 13 we did the Sentinels, because that's what we wanted to do in uh, Friday the X-Men. So that's actually the story we wanted to do first. And that's how come we were, that's where they came from. We had a lot of fun with the Sentinels, which we were trying to tell them, these would be fun toys, guys. But they didn't, you know, they were more interested in like three or four or five or eight action figures as opposed to one giant robot. Now, I guess with the the toy issue that you dealt with with Pride of the X Men, is that is I mean I'm assuming that was the the line of toys that Toy Biz had put out around that time frame that had Magneto, Apocalypse, Sabretooth, Wolverine, Colossus, and Storm, and so forth. Is that is that the toy line that was pretty much? Because I think that came out around 1989. I think um, is that the toy line that Toy Biz was pushing for? I mean, in in um, Correlation with Pride of the X Men at the time, or was no? That, some- that that was another toy company. I can't remember the name, but that was a totally separate one. 
Toy Biz came in partnership with the 92 version. I, I can't, unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the toy company back then. But, yeah, it was two separate toy companies. Okay. Um, well, uh, before we head in, I had one question to ask you about the infamous arcade game that seems to be quite based on the Pride of the X-Men pilot because of all the, the designs mm. of all the... That's all, right. Yeah, all the heroes look, I mean, from Dazzler to Wolverine, all look like they just jumped right off the cartoon into this machine. It, or, or, I mean, all the villains that are featured in that, would they have been planned for the series had it been picked up, you know, like Nimrod and um, you know, a lot of the various uh, Wendigo, because a lot of the villains like Juggernaut, Blob, Pyro, and White Queen all show up in the game. And I've often wondered, you know, had the series gone on, is this what we would have seen? Oh, God, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure exactly what year the game, What when did the game come out? What year did it come out? Do you remember? I want to say 89 or 90, because I, I don't know most of my childhood without that game and I, I i i noticed the x-men pilot on the marvel action universe which i watched i think from 88 to 89 which i know that's when that pilot was played between you know right. amazing friends and diner riders and stuff so i had right. to out around that time so i the game I had, came out the game came out in 92 but really? to come out in 92 it would have had to have been in production a little bit longer before that yeah wow but yeah it's uh you're talking the one that's like the four player the four to six arcade game, yeah, that has like Dazzler, Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler in it. Yep, yep, that's ninety two. Ninety two. Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's about, I, the, that's about the same I, year we did the show. I, I was gonna say the Wikipedia page says uh, character designs of the X Men supervillains are based off the nineteen eighty nine X Men pilot episode X Men Pride of the X Men. Oh, okay. Well, I know that you know Marvel had. That was their character. They had those assets existed, so they could use it any way they wanted to. Wow! So, so you guys had no input, I guess. Like they didn't, they didn't go to you all since you all did did do prior to the X Men, and like they're going to use these designs for the game. Did you guys have any knowledge of that? I guess, or we had no knowledge. I mean, we were like the orphan kids, you know. We put out, we did the Pride of the X Men, and we, it didn't sell, so they were like out of sight, out of mind. We were like nowhere near it anywhere, and so we di- we didn't get involved with the X-Men, wait until like 92, 91 to be brought back in to do the next show. Now they were there. We were like invisible <laughs> to them back then, except for the executive, well, Margaret Lesh. You know, we, we were pretty, you know, we weren't there. So, so how much of a lead time then is there from when you're told, okay, we're going to go do the show. So then you start down, sit down and start working on the show you hand it off to animators, and then it finally gets on TV. Like, how long is that process? That process runs about nine months to get one episode done. And then it's then it basically it's staggered every week or two weeks to get the next show done. Um, so, yeah, basically the show that you saw in 92, actually we started production the year before in order to get it on the air. You know, the writing had to get done and the pre-production and production overseas. Um, it's a nine-month process just to get one episode out. And so we, we started that way back in 91, 92. So then how did word finally come down that the show was going to be over? How, 
I mean, was it was the show doing well? Did it seem like it was fine? Was it just was it a surprise that it ended, or was it a surprise that it lasted three years? It was. Um, I wasn't there. I was there. The X Men was on the air for five years. I was there for the first four, and at the end of the first four, the first year, um, we basically had people working on. We had our resumes out. We were getting ready to, to you know, find some more work because we didn't know what was going to happen. Everything back then was only 13 episodes and it was when we were in post-production adding the sound and music to the episodes that suddenly said we got to pick up another 13 and everybody's going what Rip? really oh cool great <laughs> and so the last episode of i think it's 13 when uh scott and gina sitting on a, a blanket we ended i i drew that part and it was like Scott and Gene talking about getting married. What will the future hold for our kids? And it ended on the blank. They're on a the blanket. You see the sunset in the background. And that was the end of the episode. And then suddenly when they said we had a, um, a pickup, they had to go back into post and, re and, and create a new ending where they, they moved scenes around and then added a voiceover and used uh, added computer graphics to make it seem like Sinister was going to be coming around. Yeah, but that that was done way after all the animation was done. It was like a, it was added at the last minute. That is really cool. Cause that, I mean, because to watch that as a kid, that was a big deal. And of course, as a child, you're not sure when new episodes are coming on. You just you know, it's just kind of like blind luck that you find out. So that was a, that was a big deal to to uh, to see that because I didn't know a whole lot about them other than. Uh, it was a, you know, I think through trading cards and, you know, the action figures and things right. like that. So not a whole lot, but I just think he was a cool looking character. And that that's really cool that that ending was thrown in as a last minute, you know, to tie in the, uh, the or the, the next season, which was going to bring in Sinister and the Nasty Boys uh, right into the uh, mythology. So that's very, very cool. And I, I had often wondered, too. <laughs> Prior to you saying this, uh, that when I got a little bit older, I used I used to wonder why so many big storylines and characters had shown up in the first season. I mean, within the first few episodes, we're given Cable, we're given Juggernaut and Colossus, Apocalypse and the Four Horsemen, uh, Warren's transformation to the Archangel, Days of Future Past. A lot of stuff is packed in. I mean, a lot of big uh, events and characters are introduced in that, and cameos of like Sunfire. You know, show up. So it's, it's, and that's that's all due to the the logic of thinking this is all we've got. So let's just throw in everything in the kitchen sink. That's it. We figured we didn't have no. We had a guaranteed thirteen. We didn't have a guarantee beyond that. So we just said, okay, let's let's do the best we can with these thirteen episodes. And um, you know, things that you did, like you mentioned, Sunfire. Um, none of those cameos were written into the show. Those are stuff that I made up. Um, there was one episode with, um, oh god, I can't remember the name, but the 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 a lot of the a lot of the mutants were being slaves on Genosha. Where Play, Vi slave Play Violin, that's the name of the episode. Yeah. Play Violin, yeah. And a lot of the writers had no idea who the X Men were, and so they would write things like Mutant One, Two, Three, Four. And so, I got the idea. I asked them, okay, is this a male or female voice? You know, tell me who it is. And once I found that out. I had told my staff, okay, make this one blob, make this mystique, make this sunfire. Make I assign uh, real Marvel characters to those uh, names that they had in the script, and I even made up some more extra ones they didn't they didn't uh, know about. 
but I added all that into the shows that wasn't in the script because I knew as a kid I would get real excited if I saw, you know, other characters other than the X-Men making their cameos or Easter eggs, as you call it today, um, in the show. Um, I'm showing my age, but back in the 60s, um, Marvel Comics wasn't very well distributed. And uh, Marvel, DC controlled all the distribution. And so Stan, what Stan did in order to um, promote, promote the books is that you'd be in a Spider-Man book and you'd see Thor go through it. And then, he, you know, at the bottom, Stan would have this little caption saying, if you want to see where Thor is going, pick up, you know, Tales of Journey, Journey to Mister, whatever it was. He would add his little uh, things at the bottom to cross-promote the books. But it, what he did was c create a connected universe. And I remember seeing that. As a, I remember that thrill of reading it in the books that, wow, these guys are all in the same world. And so when I got on the X-Men, I decided that's what I wanted to do. So I didn't ask permission, which I published. If I had asked permission, I would have never happened. And uh, so I just, I just did it. I said, fine, you want to fire me? I don't care. I'm going to make the show I want to make and make it the best that I can make it. And so that's where those characters came from. Now, does that include, there's a, a quick shot of Ghost Rider in the series. There's a reference to the Punisher in the series. Are, are those? Are you responsible for those two? Yep. Guilt oh, is charged. That is so cool. <laughs> I mean, as a kid, to see that, and same thing for Firestar was born when they, in that mon that uh, flashback sequence of seeing the Sentinel and Magneto. I mean, you just—it's just like you just—you know—the fists are pumping. You're just so excited mm -hmm. to see just a quick shot that oh my god, you know they fought the Sentinels, they fought Magneto, and that. <laughs> so in this yeah. series, it's—it was so epic and. Um, to see Blob and Pyro and Avalanche all show up, Mystique shows up. And I, I remember when that none of the Sentinels came on, at least in my area, they played that pilot for what seemed like several Saturdays in a row. And I, me and my brother just waiting and waiting for a new episode, thinking this is going to be the one where Magneto shows up. So when that episode finally, Enter Magneto, airs, I mean, it was just so exciting to see Magneto burst onto the scene and Enter uh, Magneto for the first right. time. And, um it was, it was, that's what I wanted to ask you. Um, was there a deliberate gap when Nine of the Sentinels airs? Was there a, a, a delay in releasing the rest of, of that, of the 13 uh, episodes? Oh, yeah. That was an involuntary reason that happened. Um, the overseas company we, were, we had been working with had, they were notorious for um, trying to create production delays so they wouldn't have to do everything that was asked of them. And so they would sometimes turn in quality that wasn't up, up to, you know, it didn't meet our quality standards. And so um, he did the same thing with the X-Men. But when we, but this time, because Margaret Lesh was in charge of the networks, we complained to her. She complained to him and said, look, you're going to do everything that's required of you and you're going to do it right. And so the show that should have, it should have aired in September, she actually delayed um, the, the, the show. Um, she got, and she forced them to do all the changes. The, it's called retakes. When someone doesn't do something right, you got to send it back and have the scene redone. And a lot of times in production, they try and hold the show back as long as they can, then ship it to you, knowing that you have an air date that, you know, uh, will force you not to ask for all the retakes you required. You gotta, then you got to go in, in, in post-production and try and fix stuff. 
or you let you know then you get all these mistakes and crap happen and, and uh, that that's what happened back then in the 90s and 80s and so Margaret told them and forced them to do it right and so that's why you only had one episode in October 31st I think and then another one in November somewhere but the she was forcing them to do it right and that's why it didn't debut wait until uh, January because she wanted the show done right and like I said, I didn't know it at the time, but her job was on the line for putting the X-Men on the air, which nobody believed in. And so the part of the benefit of the X-Men at the time when it came out in January was that all of the other shows had shown all, all of their 13 episodes were all, you know, they were into reruns at that time. And when the X-Men came out in January, we were all brand new. So all the kids' eyeballs went right to Fox to watching the X-Men, and we actually benefited from that delay because now we had no competition. And so our story, you know, we, we, we grabbed the kids' imaginations and the ratings went through the roof. And between the X-Men, Batman, and uh, Power Rangers, it, it shot uh, Fox to kids and being the number one kids' network back then. Uh, I mean, a couple questions oh. for... Oh. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead, bud. I was going to say, I have a couple questions from YouTube uh, real quick. Uh, first of all, the geek reviews, um, when you were talking about sneaking some of the characters in um, just yeah. to have a reference or have them appear, does this mean that there was no possibility of ever doing something like a Secret Wars or some sort of giant, you know, Marvel Universe crossover? Oh, you mean back then? Yeah. Um, no, that what. The secret, we had discussed that, but we needed to get through, um, we needed to establish the characters first and the universe before expanding it to that large of a, um, of a roster. Um, that's why I think we did it in season five they, when they did um, a Bishop and the Axis of Time or something like that. That's when they felt that they could expand, the, expand all these characters once they regular characters were established. You know, that's also a reason why we only had so many X-Men because we had to, the writers felt they can only write a certain amount of dramatics and relationships. And that's why the, the, I, think the, I think it was down to eight characters, four women and four guys, in order for them to try. So it wasn't so unwieldy. You know, the writer, we only had like, you only had like 20, I think 24 minutes to, to tell a story. And one of the things we had, that we, we, I was a veteran of from back in the 80s until 92, is that as we had to get millions and millions of people to enjoy the show, uh, not just the, the fan base. The fan base is excellent, and you need that always. But if we don't get the millions of people, the show dies in 13 episodes or less. Sometimes there have been even occasions where they would pull the show halfway in the middle and just kill it. And so um, we, my, I should say we, I mean myself, Eric Leewald, Julia, and other people, we all felt, okay, let's just try and get through this, through the the basic mythologies. And and we kind of like said, okay, we're going to, we're going to start here in the storyline of, of the X-Men and just try and catch up to what was being done in the 90s. And uh, and at some point, that's when we got to the you know the Phoenix Saga and everything else. 
we were trying to catch up to what was being done in the books at the time. And so that was part of the logic we used in that. Um, let's see, what else can I remember about that? It was, um, yeah, that's, I guess that's it. I guess that's pretty much why we didn't do the Secret Wars yet, because we had to um, catch up. Oh, the other thing, yeah, the one, the only cap, the only rule that I, I just remembered that Margaret told us is that every episode had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So that when someone watched the show, they felt like they, they got an entire story. But she said, if you want to do a B storyline, a C storyline, a D storyline, that's fine. You can toss that in there. So it's like you have, you have connective tissue between episodes that felt like uh, they were connected in some way. But she said, we had to give the, the viewer a complete experience of watching a show. You know, a story, sorry. Is that kind of like referencing yeah. like uh, when Professor X and Magneto are pretty much stranded in the Savage Land, and for what seems like so many episodes, because you're watching them only on Saturday morning, so a week, week, week to week to week, you're seeing right. what's going on with those guys, but then you've got the main storyline going on with the rest of the team, you know, going through various missions and, uh, you know, fighting, you know, villains here and there. Yes, exactly, and that's why um, – um, the exception was if you created an episode that was like part one and part two, that was fine. Um, but other than that, yeah, we had to, uh, we had, that was the only, only restriction she gave us. And, um, and it worked, I think, because it, it helped bring in new viewers who had no idea who the X-Men were. And they could actually have a whole experience of watching what, what went down. And um, it, it helped. I'm not to plug my phone in. Uh, oh. I'm running out of power here. Please do. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, okay. All right. Looks like, hold on a second. You're, I, I, okay. My back? Yes. Yeah, we, we still hear you, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I got it plugged in so it won't run out of power now. Although I lost your pictures. Oh, you're I... back. You're yeah, back. We... yeah, yours blanked out for a second, but after a few seconds, it came back. Okay. Yeah, I don't... Do I see you? Just give it a... I can see you, so give it, a, yeah. give it a few seconds and it may pop back. Yeah. Okay. What's going on uh, here? Here's a question from YouTube. Uh, Drawing by Hand wants to ask, were there any episodes that were cut on TV? Um, were there any... Uh, no, if, um, except for maybe one sequence way in, in season four. No, everything pretty much was there. Um, so then what was cut? I mean, that's that's a good follow-up question. Oh, there was a sequence in... God, let's see. It was a sequence in uh, where Sinister is in the Savage Land, and um, he has these belts that allowed his characters to keep their mutant powers and, and everybody else lost theirs. And I drew this, I made up the sequence where, um, um, uh, oh God, what's, uh, um, I forgot to get, why am I forgetting this now? Oh, um, the shapeshifter. Ah, I'm showing my age here. Um, um, help me out guys. What's this? <laughs> hey. Huh? You're not talking about Mystique, are you? I'm talking about the shapeshifter on the X-Men. 
Um, oh, Morph, Morph. Morph. Good Lord, how did I forget? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was such a inst- you know, great character. Um, yeah, Morph. I had Morph because um, he had the belt on. I had him um, shift and, and fight the um, uh, Sinister and the uh, and his little fighters. But um, but it, it ran long, so that sequence got cut out, so you guys never saw it. So other than that, everything else pretty much is in. Everything I put in there was in. Um, and the, the one thing one thing I used to do, uh, because I knew we only had so many minutes in a show, when you look at the whole series, um, I tried to cut out, it's going to sound trivial, but I tried to cut out walking as much as I could. Because believe it or not, walking sometimes is a lot of work for the animators to, to do group shots of people walking across the screen. And um, it just kind of almost wastes time, unless unless it's a specific scene, like you, it's moody and you got shadows and you have long shots, you know, where you're setting up a, a scene. Uh, most of the time, I just would have the guy say, let's go, and we, we wipe and we're there. Or I'd have... Um, Either wipe or just cut to one guy on a close-up saying, "Let's let's let's go here, go there, and just eliminate the walking." I, I tr- if you watch the series, my character the characters never really walked a lot. They either flew or I just cut away, unless it was unless it was a specific scene. And what that did was it allowed more time for the script that the writers wrote to play out, and it also allowed us to add mood and uh, t- pacing for the show. To make the show more enjoyable, so it doesn't run. So it wasn't running at ninety miles an hour every damn second. You know, you had time for it to, for the story to breathe, for the show to breathe, and that that's a minor thing on my part because that's something I learned from back in the eighties to nineties. It's an experience as a director. You learn how to pace yourself and pace the story. But um, like there's a character called Sinister that has this. He's got this rib costume. He's got this rooster tail um, cape. And, you know, you could kill an animator by trying to make that guy turn and walk. Because <laughs> there's so many damn lines on him. So I made the decision when the storyboards came in, I would alter the boards so that, you know, he didn't move. Or he maybe just had a head turn. He would be talking. Then you cut to whoever he's talking to. And when you cut back, he's already in a different place and or a different pose. And then when you saw him coming I, I tried to keep him coming in and out of shadow and try and do it on a close-up so that you, he looked more like Dracula coming in and out of the shadows. And again, actually, by accident, it gave him more of a uh, of a style that this was like a mysterious character. But the main thing was like I was trying to save animators' lives so they wouldn't be dying at nighttime drawing all those damn lines. You know, that way, when you don't have a, a lot of movement, the animators and the artists can actually draw good drawings. And not have to worry about oh god I got to in between this, you know. Um, so those are little things that I did in production to help, and so that uh, it it we got more story into the show than most shows can did at that time. Now a, a quick follow up uh, question about Sinister: um, when he's brought in into the X Men books, he's got a particular group of, of villains which I don't believe were, were referred to as like the nasty boys. Whereas like in the cartoon, he's got a brand new group of villains. 
what was the logic of because I think Sabretooth was a part of his that his little faction that he put together. Just as an example, what was the idea of of creating like a whole new group of of evil mutant villains as opposed to bringing in characters that were used in the comic books? I think the the characters that the characters that he had, I, we got those from the books. We didn't make okay. those up. I was, okay, I, that's my mistake. The X Men fans, I apologize for that. I I was thinking that. Uh, that I guess I, I certainly don't know all of his appearance, so I apologize for that. I was thinking that they were um, they were made for the cartoon. My, my mistake. Yeah, no, it's, it, and what we tried to do all the time was that, at least on my end, uh, we tried not to create anything new because there's such a, a, a huge amount of X-Men characters out there. There's actually no need to um, create something new. And I did my best ne- never to create anything new. I think I, I created one new character because Marvel back east didn't have a design. And um, it was something, I think it was the episode with um, Gambit, where he went back to, to, to his people and it had a character they called the External. And uh, at the time, we I was requesting from New York you know, I need a model of this character. Who is this character? It was like, it was all brand new. They were creating the mythology as they went along. They had nothing. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm in production. I got to get the sucker out to about, you know, 14 different people this week. And so I can't really wait on you guys. So I waited for them, and they had nothing. So I went ahead and created a character, um, and I based her costume loosely on, on Hela, the goddess the goddess of death from the Thor series. And um, I, um, since it was been, since it was uh, being done, he was going back to Cajun country. You know, I made her a Creole character. And, um, and that's the only character I think I made up for the series. Other than that, I tried to, I think my friend, the, the director who came after me, um, Frank Squillacci, he, he created his own little Italian superhero character in the, in the background in, in another episode, but other than that, we just try try to uh, stick to, to existing mutant um, characters that already existed. I can't see you guys. <laughs> I hope you can see me. Uh, well, see, we, we can't. We just see your your uh, image. Oh, we can't see my. Yeah, we can't actually. Yeah, I, at the moment, we we just see the your uh, um your little. Oh, my little, the little image guy. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Is that okay? Yeah, oh, it's okay. Is it that just, okay? It just happens sometimes because, well, and then now your video just popped back up. Back. So I can see you again. It's just network, oh, you, you know, network issues happen sometimes. There's nothing you can really do about it. Um, all right, two questions uh, from YouTube. This is from the Geek Reviews. Was there ever a chance we might have seen Howard the Duck? <laughs> we did see him on a T-shirt. Of um, I think Beast was East. wearing it too, wasn't he? Yeah, Beast yeah. the T-shirt. Yes. Yeah, that was done by um when Frank Bruner was uh he was the character designer on the show when he you know we needed to give Beast a an out you know a, a, a shirt he was going to be walking out in public so he came up with that idea and drew Howard the Duck on the shirt that was his idea it was when I saw it I went yeah that's cool put that through <laughs> <laughs> all right so the second question. Um, you know, the X-Men have been drawn by a number of different artists over the years. Um, you know, when John Byrne draws the X-Men, 
they look a little different from when Jim Lee draws the X-Men, from when Wal Sportaccio draws the X-Men. So when it came to putting together the show and you're, you're defining a style and you're, just, you're defining the look of the characters, were you involved in that process of this is how the costume is going to look, this is how tall they are, this is going to be the shape of their eyes, you know, getting that definitive look of the character to make that, you know, what do you call it, like the character Bible to send to the animators so they know, so everybody when the animators draw them, they all draw them exactly the same way. Would you be part of that process of distilling the characters together and how they would look on the show? Yeah, basically in, in the first season, it was, the people that were involved was Marvel back east, but the final de- determination of what it was going to look like was Will Minio, myself, um, Rick Holberg, and um, and Fox Kids. We were that's that's actually where the final the finalization of, of the look we wanted to do. I mean, and we we decided at that point we wanted to do Jim Lee. Now there's there's a little backstory behind that because at that time. Um, for some reason, there was some politics going on, and they didn't think we should do the X-Men with the Jim Lee style, which is like, that was the cornerstone of the look we were going for. And so Will showed them, showed them okay, look, if you want a different look, he gave, them a, he gave them an example of another look. And basically, if you can imagine, the X-Men is Scooby-Doo. He gave them that look. Because he said, look, if you don't want this, what about this? And it was such a you know, shocked to the system, they backed off and allowed us to do the show we wanted to do. But, you know, they was like Professor X drawn Scooby-Doo style, um, a Scooby-Doo van with a Scooby-Doo antenna. He's in a wheelchair with a CNI dog, you know, looking for mutants around town, that kind of stuff. And, you know, thank God they didn't bite because we would have been horrified if they had actually went with that. Was that deliberate, though, to make it look... I mean, very reminiscent of Scooby Doo, hoping that they would get the get the idea, or was it just, you know? No, it was deliberate. We wanted to shock the system. Part of um, one of the things you do we that would happen in animation back then was that you kind of drew. It's kind of like this drawing six fingers. You draw something that's so off the wall, something out of the out of place, that it draws their attention to it, and, and they and they say, "Oh no, we don't want that. We don't want that." You know, and then they back off and allow you to actually do what makes sense as opposed to some crazy idea that they wanted to do. So, no, that was deliberate on Will's part, and and, and he was successful in making them um, back off so we could do the, the show we wanted to do. But, yeah, and so it's, it's all politics. It's, it's the kind of stuff that happens behind the scenes that most people don't know about that uh, – uh, it's exhausting, <laughs> let me tell you, when you're dealing with stuff like that, you know. You know Please they, tell me that that artwork still exists. It probably does, I, I, but Will Minio has it. I don't... Oh, I, man, I don't we got to find that. We got to find that. I so yeah, we need to have that. access to that. Yeah, we have to see just how how far it, it could have gone. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah, you it, Yeah, you just imagine Scooby-Doo, then you're, you're right there. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, go go ahead, Doug. Well, I just I just want to take a step back for a minute. Um, you know, working on X Men um, is obviously the focus of what we're, we're you know here to talk about. Today. Your voice is breaking up. Well, can you give us a little bit of background on how 
you got into animation and how you got to the point that you were working on all these shows, doing artwork, doing the, the character designs, the storyboarding and all of that kind of stuff? My background starts way back in in the 70s where Will Minnie and myself, we were all drawing our own little fanzines. We got to know each other through the snail mail back then. And um, we later on, Will went to Hanna-Barbera, and eventually we both ended up at a studio called Filmation Studios, and that's how I got into the business. And when I left Filmation, I went to work for Marvel Productions and working with Stan on Spider-Man. Well, actually, it was a syndicated Spider-Man. I was working with Art Fratello, the director at the time. Is that the solo Spider-Man uh, series? I'm sorry? The, the solo Spider-Man series where it's just Spider-Man on his own? Correct. Yes. And they, the series needed, I think, 26 episodes to finish off the... Uh, they, they always did 65 episodes back then. So I was brought in to fi- help finish out the, uh, what they needed. And so I worked, I worked, that's how I got into Marvel Productions. And then um, I was there when I started doing the Spider-Man's Amazing Friends, uh, working for a director named Don Jerwich. And we did that for a couple of years, I think three years. I got a chance to work with John B. Selma. We got, Stan talked to him into coming out for a couple of weeks. And that was really a thrill to actually go to lunch and talk, talk to John about the business and watching him draw. Every time he would throw stuff away that he didn't like, we were all raiding his trash can, you know. Because <laughs> it was like, what he discards is like fantastic. So, um, well, anyway, the um, after Spider-Man, I think we did, that's when all of the syndicated stuff started taking off the G.I. Joe uh, miniseries, the G.I. Joe series, the Transformers. The um, Then they had uh, Inhumanoids and Bigfoot and... Um, uh, Glow Friends, My Little Pony. I mean, we were like, there was so much coming through that studio. Um, they actually had to rent two other buildings to take care of all the work that we were doing. So it was, it was really filled to the rafters with artists and and writers, and we were doing a lot of work back in the nine in the eighties. Sorry, um, you know, and one of the shots we got in there was to do the the pilot for the um, uh, Pride of the X Men. And so that was like interspersed in, 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 in between that and Defenders of the Earth and uh, what's another one out there? Um, Work on Dino Riders? And, and Dino Riders, yes. Dino Riders is out there too. So we did, there was, like a, there was so much work I couldn't remember all the shows what, we were working the on. The RoboCop animated series too. That, that, uh... Yep. Yep, worked on that also. Now, for me, I got a chance when I was working on uh, the G.I. Joe series I got a chance to um, write one of the episodes called Hearts and Cannon. And one of the directors left, and so they had an opening. So I got promoted to being a director on the uh, G.I. Joe series. And so that was a lot of fun to actually be in charge and actually make the decisions that I've always, you know, I always had to negotiate before with the, with the director. But now that I was a director, I could make the decisions unilaterally to a degree. <laughs> and... Um, that was when I started becoming a director on different shows and uh, started my my career that way. Because uh, after I I left um, after Marvel did a crash and burn and you know um, I left worked for Deke 
on their cop series as a storyboard artist, but oh, then I got another shot. Yeah. And then I got a shot to work as a director on, um, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure if this is what's first, but I did, uh, I was a piece of director on Karate Kid. Yep. And then I got a chance to work on, um, oh God, what's the other one? I just lost, oh, Captain Planet with uh, Will Minio. I was one of the, the first director working with Will on that show. And then sometime after that, after doing some, uh, just being an artist, sometime after that, that's when um, we got the call to, that Margaret wanted to do the X-Men series for Fox Kids. And then that's how, that's how that one thing led to another, and that's when that, how I got to that point. Now, before we move on, you just opened up a large barrel of, of, of other possible <laughs> questions. Just my name that you were oh. on G.I. <laughs> Joe, let alone all the other shows you worked on. Like, just just for curiosity's sake, how much do you remember working on, you know, as a director on G.I. Joe, working on Karate Kid, Captain Planet, and Robocop, and so on and so forth? I know that I worked on it. I mean, I can't, I can't remember everything about it, but I do remember working on those series, and it was a lot of fun. G.I. Joe was a lot of fun because, uh, at the time, working on network shows, um, you really couldn't do traditional action shows where the bad good guy punches the bad guy. They wouldn't allow that on network Saturday morning. But once we got to do syndicated shows, we were able to do G.I. Joe, punching out Cobra, punching out, throwing people through glass. Um, you could do just normal action shots. And it was like it was like having the chains taken off of your, your arms. You could actually just do a regular action show. And it was like thrilling to actually to do that. Um, so it was a lot of fun, you know. Um, we still we still knew that eventually these shows might be shown on the network. So we had to we couldn't go crazy, you know. Like when the the GI Joes, I'm sorry, when the Cobra planes would get blown up, you'd you'd show people parachuting down. with parachutes every single time. It was like clockwork. It, it, even as a kid, you're waiting for them to fall with a parachute. <laughs> Maybe on occasion you'd see one. Oh man, I didn't see a parachute on that guy. He probably hit the ground. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and the, and the, you know, good guy, you know, the G.A. Joe Cobra couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. You know, they shoot at each other with red and blue lasers and nobody torture. ever got hit, you know. But it was like, it was kind of like um, um, a team, you know, action where things happen, but nobody got hurt. It was kind of like, and, you know, it's, it's Saturday morning. So, you know, we, it's kind of Saturday morning violence, but at least we could punch someone, you know. <laughs> I, I never dwelt on that, though, as a kid. When I would watch the, especially G.I. Joe, and seeing that, you know, damage would be done to everything but the people running around, and I just bought into it that, you know, they're all great shots, but they're also quick at moving out of the, the range of all these blue and red lasers. So I just, stuff like that never really bothered me until I, as an adult and people are tearing apart Star, you know, Star Wars with stormtroopers and bad accuracy and stuff like that. So Yeah, we, we knew the audience we were we were drawing and writing these stories for, so we we kind of let that go. We didn't make it a big deal out of it uh, in most in most cases. You know, it's kind of like that. That wasn't the fun of it. The fun of it was the other stuff, not that people got damaged and, and hurt and got shot. You know. Okay, right, we, we, we have to do like a, a, a couple, podcast just for that. Yeah, I was gonna say oh. there's a couple people in the YouTube chat right now, and they're basically asking the same question. Uh, everybody, th- I guess this is the burning question for Larry Houston. 
did you work on the anti-drug episode of Captain Planet? Oh, wow. I forgot about that one. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, no, it's been, it was a while ago. Um, I can't say if I, if I did or not. I don't know what season it was. I, I worked on the first season of Captain Planet. Um, but there are like four other seasons after me. And I don't know if I worked on that one or not. So I can't say that with the, with definitive. If someone knows what if it what year it came out, I can probably tell you if I worked on it. I, we did a lot of episodes dealing with ecology. Some of them with um, you know killing of rare, rare animals and stuff stuff like that, endangered animals, I should say. Um, but the I I might have, but I, I can't say definitively unless I look at a if it's in the first season of of the series. Yeah, they think they think it was season two. So it might, yeah, that might have been another director because I was only on it for the first season. Although, when you're working on a series like that, you're doing, you did. Uh, it says according to Internet Movie Database. So depending on how accurate that is, you did 39 episodes in that season. So I guess. Were there were there times that you would just sit and just crank out a whole bunch of concepts to get to later, and then when you would leave the show, you would just pass them on to somebody else there and say, here, maybe you want to do something to them? Or was it more like when you're gone, you're just like, this is all mine, this is all mine, and you'd take it with you and leave? <laughs> no, uh, what, hap- what would happen was that we would have story meetings with the story editors. The, uh, Turner had his own pre-production crew of writers that were really deep into uh, ecology and stuff. And so there would be maybe brief discussions with us, but pretty much all of that was handled by them. And we pretty much got what they gave us. Um, and, you know, we had, there was a back and forth, but basically they dictated everything because they were paying for everything. Uh, the Turner people were for that series. That was pretty much all financed by, you know, Turner himself. That was his, his. That was his baby, of uh, a concept, and so um, we would get, you know, get the scripts and work on them and do it. But um, yeah, I wasn't. That I didn't have control over that. That was uh, Ted Turner. Now, would you would you be willing to do another podcast discussing a lot of these various other works? Just 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 so I can I can. <laughs> there's just so many other questions I can ask, and I I know we're here to talk about X Men, but I I just feel like. With fans freaking out about Captain Planet and stuff, is that something you'd be willing to do in the near future? Sure, I wouldn't oh. mind doing it at all. You hear that here, people? He, he will come back and talk about these other works here too, because I got burning questions about GI Joe and so forth too. I'd love to ask you about it as well. Um, well, uh, then let me let me circle it back to X Men. Then, yeah. when you're working on something like a, a Captain Planet or something that that's more of a an original um, work. And then you're working on something like X-Men where you're pulling from Marvel. Does it, does it really make a difference? Do you prefer one way or the another where you get to be more original and come up with stuff? Or is it more fun to take the stuff that's been done in another format and modify it, rework it in order to put it onto the show? Um, we're talking about just the X-Men now, right? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, the idea of like when you take something like X-Men – is it more fun to take those characters that you've seen in the comics and adapt them to TV? Or is it more fun to work on something like Captain Planet where you're just making the stuff up original out of your own mind as you go? For me, I had more fun, I think, because I had a personal 
connection with the X-Men because I, I grew up with this since I was a kid. I was in elementary school, you know, watching that stuff. Uh, Captain Planet was uh, working from a, a character without any um, any mythology. The fun part of that is that you can, you know, your imagination is, is, is open. You can do anything you want. Um, the... Um, I guess for me the preference I, I like working with established characters, um, but the Captain Planet the, the um, my creativity on Captain Planet was limited to um, what was provided to me by the Turner people, and um, and it was such an amorphous concept back then. Um, you know, there's no a backstory. There's no real backstory. There's no real relationships. There's no real um, you know, something you can sink your teeth into in terms in terms of what motivated what motivates the character. I like knowing that because when I'm asking, either when I'm drawing or when someone else is drawing the stories, I like to give them some context of like, oh, you know, this character's like, you know, a brother or sister to this character, and, and it's like Clint Eastwood, or this is like a, 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 another actor. You know, try and give them points of reference so that when they're drawing the stuff. They can they can figure out how best to stage the character and then pose the character to the personalities involved. It, it gives you something to work with as an artist when you're when you're storyboarding a, sto- uh, a show. And the um, Captain Planet is pretty much wide open. You, you're, you're working from a blank slate, blank uh, yeah blank slate, and so it's a little bit harder to to get the underlying subtext into the show, but. You know, because nothing's there, you can just do anything, almost anything you want, and what you do will define the character. So, there are people who like, who would prefer that method, and uh, I prefer the latter, which is uh, um, working from something I already know exists, and I can figure out how to how to work the subtext into the show. Now, um, a very pivotal point about the X-Men series and obviously is still celebrated even even touched upon apparently in uh, uh, the uh, production of the uh, especially the first X-Men film is uh, Wolverine's portrayal in this particular series, you know, voiced by Cal Dodd. Now Wolverine obviously is a very savage character. You know, he drinks he smokes cigars, you know he's, he's, he's pretty blunt about things how is it, I mean how is the process of, you know Bringing Wolverine to this, you know, to a, a Saturday morning cartoon, maintaining the very distinct personality, but also making sure that you know we we you know like if he fights Sabretooth, you know we can't show blood, we can't show wounds and stuff like that. That was it difficult to portray Wolverine with with kind of eliminating you know the the drinking, the smoking, and the slashing of of human beings. Obviously, with Sentinels, it was pretty easy for him to just tear them apart, but. When you see him fighting other characters, is how what's how's how was that balance? Uh, um, that was a very difficult balance because you know what his powers are, and it's stabbing and ripping and shredding people, and so we had to be judicious in in, in staging. That was a real challenge to try and make sure that the character came off as who he is, but also knowing that it's on Saturday morning what we can get away with, and. Um, like when he fought Sabretooth, a lot of it is close quarters. You see him slashing at each other, but um, 
there's never any puncture wounds and stuff because um, they were like running, they'd be rolling around like wrestlers or something like that. And so, um, and, and uh, kicking each other off flips. Um, that's about what we could get away with on Saturday morning. That, that was a difficult thing to do. And um, sometimes I would have drawings that were done by artists that they, you know, they, they drew him, you know, slicing someone and I'd have to take it out and restage it another way so that it was, it could meet the broadcast standards and practices. Cause you know, I know what would not get through. And so I had to be creative and, um, and making sure that nothing got through that would make the sensors, the BS the BSMP there, you know, wouldn't make their hair come on fire and stuff. But yeah. Um, Luckily, when he luckily we had robots that Wolverine could cut loose on and, and rip them to shreds, and so um, that's why we like the Sentinels and other robots. <laughs> <laughs> now the uh, the opening sequence. Oh, go ahead, Doug. I, well, I was just going to ask: uh, Were you aware that the X Men series uh, continued recently? Uh, Marvel Comics brought back X Men ninety two as a comic book series uh, starting first digitally and then printing it, uh, revisiting those characters, those storylines, uh, and particularly that art style that was created for the show and have continued it in print for the modern era. I am, yeah, no, I am aware of it. Um, the guy, Scott Koblish is a friend of mine and I think he's the, one of the artists who drew it. So we're pretty, pretty good friends out here. So he gave me a heads up that was coming out and uh, no, I really enjoyed it. He was having fun drawing it and it was like, it was nice to see them do that, you know, because um, those characters are, are pretty much, I, I, I could almost say they were like the iconic versions that people have got grown to love uh, over the years. And um, I'm glad they were able to um, uh, put out a book that uh, kids wanted to read and, and to bring back that nostalgia of those characters back then. Um, no, I really liked it. Um, uh, another, and I talked to uh, Larry about this in private a while back too, was that the opening sequence, uh, that is so, I mean, probably uh, one could say probably the most memorable part about the series is the, is the introduction to the show, which from the music to the sequences of all the characters being introduced at the beginning of the show, uh, was not originally like that. Is that correct, Larry? Like there was a, a, a completely alternate, all, or alternative uh, introduction to the show that you had done, correct? Um, in terms of um, um, the opening for the X Men, um, I did a. I started doing a version of it that um, wasn't quite there, and then so we uh, talked to Will. Will did he did the first three images, uh, the ship and Cyclops. And so that kind of put me on a path. And then from that point, from that point forward, I drew the rest of it. And um, yeah, that that was the the, uh, the the opening titles that you see today. Now, the other thing that most people don't know is that the opening theme music that was the I think it was the fifteenth take to get it to what you guys know today, but that. Um, there were like 14 other versions that were like rejected. 
And at the time, Saban, which was the company providing the music, got really pissed off because he's, he's used to like you maybe do two or three versions and that's it, and they just they just crap it out. And um, we were like, no, this isn't still good enough. This isn't good enough. This has to be changed. So it, it actually, you know, went 15 versions to the final version that you guys know know about, but it was it was a hard hard battle to get that version because he didn't understand why are you doing this? Just put anything out there. Nobody cares. And we actually did care. But in his mind, he's made a fortune by just, you know, doing whatever and dumping it out there and, and making a ton of money. But for us, we had the integrity for like, we only gonna, we're only going to get 13 episodes of this, so we have to make this the best we could make it. And so we were like putting our political, not political, but our professional careers on the line by saying, look, no, we want it this way. We want this to happen. And so a lot of, you know, we, we, um, Margaret, myself, Will, we all were standing firm. You know, we didn't really care if we got fired, but we had to stand up and make sure that we got the show on the air that we wanted. And so it was a lot of, there was a lot, you know, there were a lot of battles like this behind the scenes that nobody knew about but us in trying to get this thing on the air. And, um, yeah, so that's one of many behind-the-scenes <laughs> things that happen um, to get this sucker on the air. And, and um, God, we were so happy that it got a pickup, that it had an audience, and people liked what we were doing. And luckily, once we got past the first season, all the little things I used to do to make the show better, um, nobody gave me any static. Nobody said, don't do this, Larry, don't do this, Larry. Um, they pretty much left me alone to be a creative person to make the show I wanted to, it to be uh, for the first four years of the, of the series. Um, Do you the, know why the Japanese version had a completely different introduction? And was that just common uh, back in the days, just to have other countries do their own intros to the show? Or was Japan special for making a, a new intro for the show for... No, sometimes they, they, they would do something for their own culture, for their own audience. They would make up something. And um, I, when I saw it, I went, holy shit, that's really good. When I saw that, <laughs> I went, damn. Uh, why couldn't we have talked to these guys first in the first year? But, you know, like I said, the X-Men was not expected to last. So nobody had any expectations. Nobody wanted to spend the money. They thought we were all going to crash and burn. So we were kind of like a little orphan out there, and we – the little engine that did, you know, we climbed that hill and we, we made it work. Did you have any talks with the composer of the theme song or theme music? Because I believe it was Shuki Levy who, to tie it back to He-Man, did the, the, the He-Man uh, uh, theme as well as a lot of the various pieces of music on the cartoon. Uh, no, I didn't have it. I Peripherally, I didn't have it directly. It was mainly uh, Will Minio and uh, Eric Lee Wall. Okay. They were like uh, the pioneers to make sure they got the version they wanted on the air. I'd heard in early versions, but that's, you didn't want to hear any of those. They were like pretty generic uh, oh. stuff. Now, what about the Pride of the X-Men intro? Because, I mean, to me, I thought that was pretty pretty damn catchy myself. The, from the music to the, the action sequences in that, I mean, I thought that was very well done as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know who the music composer was on that one. Um, I'd have to go IMDB like you guys and find out who that was. <laughs> Um, 
it might have been Saban again, but I, you know, they're pretty much what were the go-to studio for getting music done at that time. But I could be wrong. I'm not sure yet. But um, I'm a fan of um, of I don't like a lot of lyrics in the titles. I like the music to tell the story, and um, you know. But they they wanted a sales tool basically to try and put it in the kids' minds. That's why X Men X Men saved the day. You know they. We went, okay, we, we need to sell this. We need to get this out there in the, in the world so people know who these characters are. So I went, yeah, that's cool. You know, let's, let's billboard the characters so they can remember it. And, um, yeah, I was on, on board with it. Amazing. Were there any particular characters that you really wanted to have on the show, but when you spoke earlier about having to try to pare things down so you had – four you know, males, four females, whatever. Were there particular characters that you really wanted to put on there, but you just didn't have the opportunity to bring them into the show? Well, yeah, for me, it was like, I, you know, the Nightcrawler and Colossus were the ones that I, I was sorry to see go. I understood why, but those are like fun characters that we you could have a lot of fun with. We did it with Pride of the X-Men with, with Nightcrawler uh, to, to a certain degree also with uh, Kitty Pride. Um I know those two are ones that would be would have been would have been fun to, to uh, have, have into the series, but you know they had to call the, call the members so to speak. So that's how I got paired out. And Colossus's power is pretty much duplicated by Rogue being both super strong. And um, Nightcrawler got got called along with uh, Kitty Pride, and basically Kitty Pride got replaced by um, Jubilee. Yeah. As a young, young, the young kids, uh, young superhero girl. Now, was there no any idea? Because eventually, Colossus shows up in the Unstoppable Juggernaut. And Nightcrawler shows up in the episode Nightcrawler. Like once you've introduced them, was there ever a point, like in a future season, we can incorporate them in a few occasional episodes as part of the roster? Whereas instead of Rogue in this episode, Colossus is there to kind of fill that that spot, and you could bring a Nightcrawler and rotate, you know, a Gambit out for an episode as part of the roster. I would have loved that. I mean, that's one of the things we tried to get across that we wanted to do that and bring some in, bring some, let some, you know, leave or whatever. But yeah, we, I wanted that to happen. Uh, it didn't happen because of the, uh, the stories as they got plotted out per year. Uh, you know, year, year two was the sinister, uh, morph arc. Um, every, you know, and if, if the, if, we could incorporate the characters into that arc. That was the consideration. Um, if they didn't fit into the story arc where we wanted to be at the end of the 13, then unfortunately, okay, we say, well, maybe next year we can figure out some arc and work them in. And so pretty much the story arc, the 13, the 13 story arc uh, was, you know, that was the key. And we could make that work then it, everything was fine. Um, but, um, yeah, I would have loved to have some of those characters in it almost in every episode. But it didn't work out that way. Um, I'm going to have... Whoops. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no problem. Is, I got to... Let me, let me get the... This charger is not working as well as it should. Let me... I'll be about 30 seconds. You're fine. Right back. Okay. How are we doing on time, Doug? Uh, well, I mean, we've been an hour, 20 minutes, and technically we have eight hours until YouTube shuts off the feed, but I 
don't miss it in the chairs for eight yeah, hours. Yeah, I guess we can, um, because I still got a ton of questions. I, I could still ask him about the series along with some other stuff. So we could always, because um, we only keep Larry a very long time, um, probably try and wrap it up with another question or two um, or, or close out with uh, some of the fan questions or anything else or yeah i mean we've pretty much been doing them as they've been coming in so uh some of them i've just been you know, typing and answering the chat um but yeah i think just go ahead whatever questions that you have oh, except the geek reviews wants us to talk about his work on care bears but we'll save that for the other uh we'll save that for a, a future uh, next time yeah 80s cartoon because he will come back for that so we will have him back for that one as well yeah so so, so ask the ones you've been dying to ask here uh we'll, okay. we'll go with those I, 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 and a pretty good meaty question i think that could go on for a bit so i'll just ask that one there so anything else guys on youtube anything else that you put in here we'll save them for uh next time that we have them on here um but we're we're gonna we're gonna cut it off at this point yeah we don't want to overstay our welcome with larry here we want to keep everybody wanting more as well so if people are enjoying this one then we'll we'll have him back for a third visit (sighs) okay guys i think i i found a better outlet i was watching my phone i was talking to you i thought it was it was charging but it was going like ten percent, nine percent. Change the phone pretty quick. I've done. I've made that mistake several times myself. And uh, so I said, "Okay, I better find a better uh, charger before this thing dies on me, hundred percent." So right now, let's see. I got to. Uh... Ah, there it is. Okay, I'm gonna have to hold it for now on. Right. Okay. Well, uh, we w- we didn't want to keep you much longer, so we we're going to ask like one more good meeting question, then we were going to let you go, and because um, we didn't we didn't want to uh, keep you longer than than necessary, and we we've been going for about an hour and a half. We don't don't want to uh, you know uh, inconvenience. We don't want you sick of us. That's what we're saying. We don't want you. Yeah, we don't want you. Get, we, want you to <laughs> we don't want you. Oh dear God, it's them again. You know, so we uh, we want to kind of go out on a high note, like Seinfeld season nine, so to speak here. Okay. Okay. Um, for that, uh, the uh, last question, um, and and this, I've often wondered about this as well, especially with you being such an avid fan of X Men. When you're adapting a particular storyline, you know, and it's supposed to either go into a small one episode, or even if it's done over a series of episodes, like Phoenix Saga, which was pretty much spot on right out of the books. I mean, you go, you go read Phoenix Saga. What you read is pretty much what's shown, you know, in the series because you were given you know, a lot of episodes to do that full storyline, both Dark Phoenix and the Phoenix Saga. But what has to be taken into consideration when you're adapting a particular storyline and feel like, okay, like with Days of Future Past, you know, Bishop has given a much prominent role in that storyline. Um, you know, how do you decide, okay, we're going to cut this, we're going to change this, you know, because they do it a lot in, in a lot of the superhero movies as well, where they will change. I mean, for a lot of fans of the of the of the characters and series and stories, you know, you don't like to see a whole lot of great changes. And not that a whole lot were done in the series, but how do you decide what can be changed? What is it we must we we must stick keep this? You know, what? How do you decide all that when adapting a story? Well, what one of the, one of the nice things about uh, the creative team is that we were all pretty much on the same page, and we pretty much all believe that you need to change as little as possible because there's a reason why the books are successful. There's a reason why these characters work the way they do. And so there's not 
you shouldn't be changing things arbitrarily just because you can. You should probably you should try and preserve what makes the character or the series work and put that on the screen. And to that, and to that degree, we all believe that. Now, the consideration for adapting, basically, is that, okay, um, we're moving from comics to cinema. And in cinema, it's not the same as comics, and so it's a different consideration as to how to tell the story. But the other thing is that um, we need to reach a huge audience that most do not know the mythology that the comic book reader would know. And so in adapting the stories, you try and make the story accessible to that larger audience, but all at the same time not try and discard and throw away what makes the characters and the stories work. And so it's a balancing act, but first and foremost, we always considered not to, ch to change as little as we had possibly could to make it work. And that's how we approached the series. That's how we approached all the characters. And that's how come the series is pretty much like the books, is that we had that uh, reverence for what made, made everything work in the books, what made, it, what made it fun to read, what made it exciting. And the fact that we were all, almost all, of the creative people, um, we were all fans of the books. And so I, I used to tell my friends, you know, that, you know, I had, what, at the time, like 25, 30 years of uh, Marvel uh, mythology in my head, which was totally useless in life until I got a chance to work on the X-Men, until I got a chance to work on any of the Marvel properties. And then suddenly all of that trivia that I knew was quite essential in knowing how to uh, fix and correct things that maybe the writers did, maybe the, the artists did, and I could steer the ship and make sure that it was on course to being as close to the books as possible. That's always been my um, philosophy. And, um, and at times, if I could, I would have either, either the artist would do it or I would just change it and, and redraw stuff. But I would take things like from the Phoenix Saga. I think it's the part where um, they're on the moon fighting the Imperial Guard. And I had um, either I drew it, I had someone else drew it. I had, okay, take this panel that uh, John Byrne drew. We're going to animate that shot. We're going to animate this shot. I would take scenes from the books and have them animated into the show at cinema. Um, so that you really got a taste that I was, we were really trying to be truthful to the original stories we could. And so, um, you know, I think it works well when you have people working on a show that actually like the show, you know, that actually like the mythology, that they bring to it an, an intangible that makes the show work. And luckily, it, you know, it translated to an audience a huge audience ratings, and so it kept us afloat and kept us in the business. But, you know, that's, that's the way I believe, you know, cartoons should be. They should, you, 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 you remember the source material and you adapt it for, for cinema. You just don't change it because you can. Change it because you have to, not, 
because uh, this will look cool because I thought it would be cool. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. Change it because you have to, but keep the original core material there because that's what people are expecting. And that's just me. And luckily, my other, my other uh, creative cohorts, <laughs> we all believe the same thing. Myself, Will Minio, Rick Holberg, um, Frank Bruner, uh, Mark Lewis. God, I know I'm forgetting more people here. And the writers, you know, Mark, uh, Bob Skier, and others. Uh, um, Brooke Wachell, Wachell. I'm mispronouncing his name, probably. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we all... That's how we all believe in, in, in storytelling. So that's how I approached a- adapting anything, especially the Marvel stuff to, to television. Which is why that show continues to still resonate with thousands and millions of fans all over the world, why they always look to that as probably the best interpretation of the X-Men, even above all the films they've done since 2000. I, I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad they responded to it because that's, we put our best foot forward and just hope that it didn't get stepped on. <laughs> Everybody liked it. It's like, oh, great. I think it's the one. We got, we got... Go ahead. No, I just think it's it's still continuing to step on any, any any other competition. I mean, the movies have got a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. and But I think overall, the X-Men animated series, much like the Batman animated series, is arguably the best. The Batman, this X-Men series, is the, the pinnacle of what, if you're going to introduce somebody to the X-Men, outside a comic book, you need to show them the, the 90s animated series because I think that's the, the tone, the dialogue, the action. It, it's, it ages very, very well. There's nothing dated about the show. And, it, and your all's care and consideration to make sure that it's the best that it could be, it's, it still continues to uh, pay dividends to fans and, and to, you know, we continue to thank everybody who worked on the show. I'm, I'm glad you're being very kind. <laughs> about the, the animation because uh, our our budget for doing the animation was nowhere near as good as the Batman. I mean, they had an excellent budget. We had like a <laughs> I don't know what you want to call it, but sometimes we'd have great episodes that would come back from overseas. Some of us like, eh, well, okay, no, not so good. Um, the one thing we had going that I think kept us going was we had great stories. We had great writers and good and excellent voice actors. Excuse me. And um, I think that was our strength, was that we, was the stories. Even if the animation didn't match it, at least we kept the stories interesting and compelling. And um, so it was, you know, I, you know I, I know there were bad episodes animated, and some of it, it doesn't hold up, but the, the stories do. You're probably just uh, going to yeah. say that because you're a perfectionist about the X-Men, whereas we look at it like, <laughs> oh, boy, that looks so damn good. You know, it's, <laughs> even though there's some, you know, errors here and they all, all anime from He-Man to X-Men to Batman, they're all animation errors in every, every, every show. But, uh, yeah, much too hard on your the, the, there. No, the, the show, the one thing I ever, I did, uh, that I, I'm really proud of for animation purposes is that, um, I created the G.I. Joe movie opening intro. Hell yeah. <laughs> and, um, I, I, I really, I really love what they did because that was like the one time I drew something from scratch, and you know, you you draw stuff up, you send it overseas, you maybe get maybe fifty percent of what you wanted because if they didn't have a budget for it, 
all the little small things and nuances, they would just not do. They would just, you know, they would only do, do the big stuff and ignore all the other stuff in the storyboards. And when I did the movie intro, um, they actually did every damn thing I drew. I went, holy shit, look at that. They did this, they did that. This looks great. I mean, the pencil tests were fantastic. And um, I, I really, that's the one piece of animation I'm, I'm really proud of because that's, I had a theatrical budget behind that opening title. And um, that was so cool to see. And uh, so, so I, we're talking, yeah, I like, go ahead. Just, like the Crimson Guard dropping down and punching the camera that's recording all the events going on and and just every 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 small little detail in that you know that that that's that's all you and they they brought it to life they brought it to life i made all i made the entire thing up from scratch i had um there was no script they just told us it was three of us myself uh boy kirkland and frank parr uh two other directors that went on to do fantastic frank parr went on to, to direct the um the gargoyles and boy kirkland went on to do um directing i think the the um the x-men series after me um, evolution evolution yeah and um and so he at the time they gave us the assignment of like we need an intro to gi joe and so they said okay you guys three make up something so i went home and i started thinking about it and at the time it was it was about the time the statue of liberty was reaching one of those you know anniversaries so that gave me the clue, and I just started. I just started making up stuff. I basically had been working on GI Joe for like five years, four years, whatever it was. I had all. I, I knew all the shots. I knew every, I knew the characters, and so I just started drawing stuff and um, making stuff up, and and um, that's where it came from. And I, 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 you know, I have all the Cobra people, and you know, coming down thousands of balloons, and they drew thousands of balloons. I went. Oh shit! They drew it all. Look at that. And uh, <laughs> I show. I tried to showcase characters that normally don't get their time on the screen. I put you know, snow, you know all the characters, obscure characters, and put them in. Made sure they were almost in every shot. You know, somebody new, some new GI Joe character that doesn't reg- regularly get seen. And, and um, yeah, that was the one piece of animation. Oh man, I really enjoyed that. That was really good. So you I enjoyed all the good moments in that huh? opening sequence. I'm sorry. I said you gave Snake Eyes some very good moments in the opening sequence. Yeah, yeah. I, I had some fun with it, and yeah, literally everything, everything in 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 that opening title were is it was like a culmination of all the experience I had working in, in the business and all of the anime inspired um, films I had seen up to up to that point. And uh, just try to let my imagination. Everything was a stream of consciousness. What you saw there, I was just, I was drawing stuff and didn't even know what I was going to draw next. It just kind of, that's how it, it was created. I certainly hope you realize the the massive box of questions that just you've really unleashed now because oh. it's, <laughs> it's it's oh. it's coming. So we we definitely want to uh, save that for our next uh, interview. So um, okay. We just like to go ahead and take this time to uh, wrap up and, and graciously thank you for devoting your time to talking about X Men and uh, look forward to another installment of GI Joe and Captain Planet and various other uh, cartoon questions we can ask you. And Care Bears, apparently, YouTube wants <laughs> us to talk about Care Bears. Oh yeah, I did. I did a whole season of Care Bears and I think uh, three uh, directed video movies. 
Well, Doug, you got anything to add here before we let Larry go? No, I just wanted to, you know, thank you again for coming and doing the show. We, you know, really enjoy having you here. Your mind is just this fountain of knowledge that we're trying to pick clean and absorb as much as we can. <laughs> uh, everybody out there who watched this, thanks for watching. Don't forget to go to popculturenetwork.com for more podcasts and great stuff that we have for you. And even tonight, later on tonight, we'll have a, another live episode as we do the Fans of Power podcast will be coming. So uh, Tyler is also a part of that. So if you enjoyed hearing his soothing tones, you can check that out uh, later tonight. But uh, once again, Larry, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, We've enjoyed it so much. And again, thanks everybody for watching and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much, Larry. We'll we'll, uh, be in touch for the the next round. uh, Okay. Thank you. you.